today for multiple reasons. Um, I mean, you got to admit, top, the top reason is because there's a baptismal tub right there, and we get to baptize some people at the end of service. If you didn't know, that's happening. Um, so that's super exciting. But the second reason I'm excited is because we get to start the book of Philippians this morning. And Philippians is near and dear to my heart. Uh, it captured my, my attention uh, when I was in college. And um, it actually also happens to be the first book of the Bible that my dad preached through 40 plus years ago. Um, and then also my brother, who's also a pastor, it's the first book he preached through. So it's going to be the first book that I will be able to preach through from start to finish. Um, so kind of crazy how the Lord just does little things like that. But um, so, yeah, we're going to start it up today. Uh, it's one of Paul's letters. And, and like any other book, book of the Bible, you know, it's, it's, it's not just another book of the Bible. You know, books of the Bible are not uh, a monolith, right? They're not all the same kind of a book. Uh, there's a wide range of what these books are. Um, all books of the Bible carry a genre. And there's, there's, a, there's a, a range of genres in the Bible. It's really a library of books. Um, whether it's historical narrative, like we find in Genesis, or prophecy, like we find in Isaiah, or apocalyptic literature, like we find in Revelation, um, or epistle, like this one. An epistle is basically a letter. And so the New Testament um, from Matthew to Revelation is made up also of multiple genres of books. Um, historical narrative and biography, like the Gospels and the Book of Acts. Uh, epistles, which goes from Romans all the way to the second to last book of the New Testament, Jude. Those are epistles. And then apocalyptic literature, like we said. So with Philippians here, we have a pretty short but substantial piece of of correspondence. This is an epistle. This is a letter. And just like any other letter written in any other time in history, it has a writer and a, and a receiver. It has a, a, a sender and a recipient. It has an author and an audience. There's, there's two components there. And since this letter was written 2,000 years ago in the first century, in the Roman Empire, it carries also many similar elements to other letters written in that time, especially letters of friendship. And so a lot of commentators call this letter, uh, they call it a hortatory letter of friendship. And hortatory just means an exhortation, an encouragement, uh, a letter of friendship, but also that contains words of wisdom, words of encouragement for the other person. And so today, we're not going to get that far <laughs> in the letter, but we're basically going to look at those couple of components that are super important for any letter, which is the author, the audience, and then we're going to look at the initial greeting. And so we're looking at an introduction to this letter. Uh, as we introduce this letter, though, what we will find is Paul lays out already in the first couple sentences some of the themes that will carry us through the entire letter. And so we get to do that this morning. But the nice thing about the New Testament, especially Paul's letters to these churches, 
is that we don't just have this letter to go on. Like, imagine you, uh, your, your grandparents, you know, they, they, maybe they were married for 60, 70 years, and you obtained a, a love letter of, from, from their relationship, written by maybe your grandfather to your grandmother while they were separated during the war or something like that. If you obtained that letter, you would cherish it. You would reread it. You would be like, wow, what, is, what does that sentence mean? What, what was going on there that inspired the writing of that, that paragraph? And, but then imagine that, you know, decades and decades ago, your grandparents had a friend. And that friend was a, a you know, he did like journalism and, and biography as a hobby. And so for whatever reason, he decided to document your grandparents' meeting, how they met, the first few months of their relationship and the details and what was going on around them. What if you got your hands on that as well? Wouldn't that put the letter in, in its proper context? Because you'd be able to read how, oh, this is how my grandparents met. That's so cool. This is what was going on in history when they met. Wow, that makes this letter all the more vibrant to me. And the cool thing is, that's what we have. Because the book of Acts tells the story of how Paul met these people. And so we get to rewind the clock and take a look at a decade or so earlier at what the context was for this letter. And that's going to be exciting. So that's why we're not going to get very far in Philippians, but we will cover some scripture. So, we're going to read our passage today, which is Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to rewind the clock and read the origin story of this church in Acts 16. So, get ready. All right, let's take a look. Philippians 1, uh, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, go ahead and turn over to Acts 16. Don't worry, we will return to to, uh, Philippians in a moment. And uh, Kai, you can throw up the map now. All right, Acts 16, starting in verse 1. And uh, I might kind of pause and point at the map a couple times just so you're ready. All right, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. Okay, so it's kind of hard to see, but you see Syria on the right and then Israel below. If you go up and to the left, you start to enter modern-day Turkey, which is that kind of entire... Uh, section on the top right. So that's where Derby and Lystra are. Okay, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. 
Excuse me. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So we're still in the same modern-day Turkey area, uh, Phrygia and Galatia, but they're starting. They're kind of heading west, and then they tried to go. We'll see here. They try to go north into Asia, but clearly the Holy Spirit has other plans. And when they had gone up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, all of which is north and heading kind of northeast up there, just south of the Black Sea. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And Troas is a coastal town on the western border of what's modern-day Turkey right there. So they're basically up against the water at this point. Okay? So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man from Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Okay. So they're, they're up against the water. It's the, uh, what sea is that? I can't tell. A GNC, yeah, on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. Macedonia is over that sea up on the top of Greece. It's, you know, if you, if you took land route, it would be up and over. That's northern uh, modern Greece is Macedonia. Okay? Uh, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So that is, all of which is in that northern Greece area, kind of hooking around the Aegean Sea right there, and Philippi is not on the coast, but it's uh, 10 or so miles inland. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, which is back over in Turkey. A seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, awesome, She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul... Having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. 
Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Awesome. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's pray. Dear Father, I just thank you that you have preserved these beautiful stories, Lord, of your church beginning, and preserved these beautiful epistles and letters written to encourage them. And I pray that um, the Spirit, Lord, who preserved them, who, who carried Paul in the writing of them, Lord, would, would use these words from your word to speak to our hearts. Lord, that your word would reveal your character and what you'd want to speak directly to us by your Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so that was sort of the origin story to this church. We see three, three scenarios, you know, the, the situation with Lydia at the river, the situation with the slave girl who annoyed Paul, and the, the Philippian jailer, all of which had Jesus spoken over them and their lives transformed. And just a couple of notes that are that are worthy to kind of take away from that uh, section of Acts. This is the first church in Europe. Paul had spoken and will speak, it says uh, in Ephesians or about the Ephesian experience of Paul's that he spoke the word to everyone in Asia. So apparently the word had already gone out enough for this. He's like, okay, they're good. Now move on to Europe. And so what's fascinating is this is the first bringing of the gospel over west to Europe. And then we also meet Timothy there, uh, and we'll, we'll see him again in Philippians, but uh, Paul meets Timothy on his way through what becomes Turkey there, and, and then brings him with him. 
And Timothy ends up being one of his most beloved sons in the faith, someone that he brought up and uh, raised up as a leader in the church. Okay, that's another thing to mention. And then if you notice, they go down to the river and they, they, it says, we suppose there was a place to pray. And the reason why they don't go directly to the synagogue, which is their usual practice, is because there was none. And so they're like, okay, there's no synagogue, which probably means there weren't enough Jewish men to form a synagogue. They ask around, you know, where do people who pray pray here in this town? And they find out that there's a group of women led by Lydia who prays down by the river. And so because of that, we basically know that there wasn't much of a Jewish presence in Philippi. It's primarily made up of Gentiles, non-Jews, and therefore doesn't have kind of that Jew-Gentile tension that we read in places like Galatians and other places where that that dissonance was strong and the issues with the Mosaic Covenant and circumcision and all that stuff. We'll see it a little bit in Philippians, but not really. uh, It doesn't seem to be a primary issue in that church. Okay, another thing to notice is that this was a, a leading city and a Roman colony. And as you noticed in the story, uh, the way that they got the crowd to be worked up is by mentioning Roman citizenship and saying, these are Jewish men and what they're teaching is against our Roman colony values. And so we need to put them into prison, get them out of our city. And so we see that in this town, in this city, Roman citizenship was a big deal. It was, um, it becomes sort of an identity politics thing. Like, I'm a Roman citizen, I have rights. And so we see that become a theme throughout this letter, is Paul flips this on his head, on its head. And if you noticed, Paul didn't start advocating for himself until after he had been completely punished after he had received beatings, after he had spent the night in prison, then, in order to elevate the gospel, he brings up his Roman citizenship and says, wait a minute, you've, you're treating me like garbage? I'm a Roman citizen. And, but you notice he didn't do that at the outset. He waited. And so that becomes a theme in this letter as well. And then one of the last things here to, to take away from this is that it was a city with a lot of different socioeconomic classes. We meet Lydia. She is a seller of purple goods, seems to have her own business. She has her own house. She's sort of like middle, upper, upper middle class. And she's able to invite them in and host them and have them stay with her and eat together and all that. And then we meet this slave girl, you know, who's owned. You know, this is, this is like an actual slave who's owned and controlled by her owners, um, who also may have joined the church after her deliverance. And then we find this theme of citizenship, too. So we, we're, we're basically in an inner urban city where there's a lot of different populations mixing together. All right. The last thing I want to just highlight is that there were two uh, whole household baptisms. You know, Lydia and her whole family get baptized. And then the Philippian jailer and his whole family gets baptized. And so this theme will start to run into Philippians is this gospel priority that, you know, in a town that regularly addressed 
the Roman Empire or the Roman Emperor as Lord and Savior, that here we have an alternate community forming, one that addressed Jesus as Lord and Savior, turning all other identities into a secondary identity at best. And so, yeah, that's the context. That's, that's the origin story for this church, which is somewhere around 50, 51 A.D., so now we can, we can jump ahead to Philippians, which was written somewhere around 60 to 62 A.D. So we got about 10, 11, 12 years that has passed. And so let's turn back to Philippians, and we'll get acquainted with the sender, the recipients, and this initial greeting. So go ahead and turn back there. All right, taking a look back at verse 1, we'll just read that first half. So it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So here we have the sender, the author, the, the, um, the person who is writing this message toward the audience, and it's Paul and Timothy. So this is interesting because as you read the book of Philippians, you don't you're not given any words from Timothy. In fact, Paul actually brings up Timothy in chapter um, 2 as someone of good character and someone that they should respect and all this stuff. So it doesn't seem that Timothy actually wrote any of these words, but he is right there. He's with Paul. He is with him in his imprisonment. He's with him in his suffering. So he's, he gets sort of an honorary sender status. But as Paul explains later in chapter 3, who is Paul? You know, a lot of you are familiar with Paul, but maybe some of you aren't. You know, Paul, he is a converted Jew. And not just any Jew. As he explains later in chapter 3, he was uh, a Jew of Jews. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. And a Pharisee, not in the negative sense, although there was many negative attributes to Pharisees, but the Pharisees devoted all of their lives to the study of God's word as, as it was thus far revealed. So these were intense, devoted followers of God. And obviously they got some things wrong when it came to Jesus. But even still, devoted, diehard, zealous people. And so Paul was one of those. And prior to meeting Jesus, Paul, who uh, was known as Saul prior to um, being, so Saul is basically his Hebrew name, Paul is his Gentile name. So Saul of Tarsus, which is also in modern day Turkey, um, he hated Christians. He was a Pharisee, a Jew who just hated Christians so bad because he thought this was a cult, basically. He thought they were just off their rocker. And so he hated them and he sought to imprison them and have them executed. That was his MO. And we meet him for the first time in Acts chapter 7. And when we first meet him, he is standing there smiling at the first martyr, Stephen. He's standing there while Stephen is being stoned for his faith in Jesus Christ Paul is standing there, and it says they laid their coats at Paul's feet, which basically means he had some authority in the matter. He was, he was an authority of this community, and he took part in that. And so uh, it, 
in Acts, uh, we find that he, he took that as his mission to stop this thing. This whole Jesus, the way, Christianity thing, I'm going to stop it and I'm going to do it in the name of God. And so he's on his way, it says, to uh, Damascus uh, in Syria to basically imprison other Christians. But Jesus had other plans for his life. And so literally he is on a horse on his way to Damascus and Jesus appears to him in a blinding light kicks him off his horse, he falls flat on his back, and Jesus strikes him blind. And then Jesus addresses him. He says, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's like, who are you, Lord? And it it becomes apparent that this Jesus, who he is persecuting by imprisoning and persecuting these people, this Jesus is, is alive. This Jesus is Lord. And this Jesus is interrupting his life for good. And so from that moment on, his life is is God's. Well, his life is Jesus's now. He thought his life was God's, but now his life is Jesus's. And so he becomes the most prolific missionary of the early church. And he, he travels multiple times, as we saw on that map, all over the known world to, to plant churches, to encourage Christian believers who are really the first churches in the world. And he also happens to write half the New Testament. So that's Paul. That's the sender of this letter. Who's Timothy? You know, we just met him in Acts 16. He's half Jewish, half Greek. Uh, we find out in one of Paul's letters to Timothy that he's brought up by his mom and his grandmother. And so he had some loss in his life. Maybe his dad passed away. And Timothy, like I said, he becomes almost a surrogate son for Paul. He, he becomes a, a, not just a mentee, but a son, a, a beloved child in the faith, Paul says. And so he's with Paul. He's, he's at his right hand. So it's from Paul and Timothy. And he most likely, uh, Paul most likely wrote this about 10 years after Acts 16, like we said. And then uh, we do find out in Acts 20 that Paul is able to visit Philippi again and encourage them again about eight years later. And there's conjecture that Luke, the writer of Acts, if you noticed, started to, to use the pronoun we in Acts 16. So it's conjecture that Luke was left in Philippi for a while to kind of encourage that church, but we don't know uh, for sure. So he visits them once more in Acts 20, and then he ends up being, Paul ends up being imprisoned in Rome. He wants to go visit Philippi again, but he never gets to because he gets executed. But not before he can continue bearing witness to Jesus and writing letters to these churches. And so we have this letter written from prison in Rome. And what is it? Basically, it's a thank you card. It's a thank you card. It, and it's convicting because how would you like one of your thank you cards to end up in the Bible? Right? I'm horrible at thank you cards. I need to get better. But this is a beautiful thank you card from Paul to this congregation. Why? Because they sent him aid. They helped him out. They found out what was going on with him, and they raised funds. They collected uh, gifts to bring to him, and they did. And one of these 
care packages that they sent, we find out is from this, is carried by a man named Epaphroditus. And we find out uh, later in the letter that Epaphroditus, you know, brought them the care package. He's with Paul. They're enjoying fellowship. And then Epaphroditus gets sick. And he almost dies. Because, you know, back then, no antibiotics. You get sick, you could die real fast. And so Epaphroditus gets sick. He almost dies. And then Paul pens this letter, and he, he writes it as a thank you to the Philippian church and also an update. Hey, your buddy, Epaphroditus, he's with me. He got sick. I know you heard that, but he's better now. I'm sending him back to you and so that you can be encouraged. So that is what he is doing right now. So this guy, he brought the care package, and he's going to head back. And Paul wants to update them. And he also wants to let them know that he hopes to return to them soon too. But unfortunately, he never is able to make it in person. And so, Paul and Timothy, that's who wrote this letter. And what does it say? What does he, how does he introduce himself? He says, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, that word servants, you might have a footnote on it. It's, it could mean servant. It could also mean slave. But it's the same word that we found in Acts 16. You know, these were people who were owned. They were slaves. You know, there's no, you know, beating around the bush. This is someone who was owned by another, whose life is controlled by another. And um, Paul here claims this title. He claims it as as an identity of his. A slave, but not just a slave, a slave of Christ. You know, elsewhere, when he's writing to churches that are messing up, like Galatians or Corinthians, he introduces himself as an apostle. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So when he needs to assert his authority as an apostle, he does. But here he introduces himself as a slave of Christ. And his claim to be a slave of Christ, that begins one of the themes of the book. One of the themes of this letter to the Philippians is that of humility in Christ. Humility. And it's not just humility in Christ, it's humility like Christ. The theme is brought out in the very heart of the letter in what's known as the Christ hymn. Many of you have probably heard it or read it. It's beautiful and it displays the glory of the humility of Jesus Christ and who he was and who he decided to, how he decided to empty himself. Go ahead and turn over there. It's chapter 2. It kicks off this theme of humility that goes throughout the whole letter. In chapter 2, verse 3, it says, he's talking to the, the congregation right now. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, same word, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." 
So this theme of humility is not just humility in Christ, it's humility like Christ. Look at the type of humility that he displayed, do the same. And that's what Paul does here when he says, Paul, a servant, a slave of Christ. Though he is a card-carrying apostle, which carries authority and authorization, he follows in Jesus' footsteps by taking the posture of a servant. So this is one of the themes that will follow us throughout our study in Philippians, and Paul kicks it off here in the first sentence. Okay, so Paul and Timothy are the senders of this letter. Who are the receivers? Right there at the second half of verse 1, it says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Okay, let's start out with Philippi. So as we saw in Acts 16, Philippi was a leading city of the district of Macedonia, which we saw was in that northern Greece area, and a Roman colony. So it was actually established by uh, Philip, one of the Greek uh, emperors, and then it was sacked by Rome in 160 or something uh, BC and became a Roman colony. And it's where a lot of Roman veterans would settle. They go and kind of retire in Philippi, but that Roman status still held weight. And so to be a Roman citizen meant something socially, politically, and even spiritually. You know, like I said, basically identity politics was a thing here. That this, this citizenship mattered. And so as we saw in Acts 16, Philippi had a diversity of socioeconomic classes represented. From the homeowning class to the slave class, Christianity was having an impact. And so we see that this letter was written to a small church in an urban center where the leading ideology was not Christianity. It wasn't cool to be a Christian in Philippi. To be a follower of Jesus as Lord and Savior caused an inevitable reality of being diametrically opposed to the prevailing worldviews of the surrounding culture. Does that sound familiar to you? And so maybe we do have some things to learn from this letter written to a congregation in that context. And so it was written to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. All the saints, Paul says. Saint. That's a word that's been co-opted and changed in current modern English language. For Paul, a saint is everyone who is in Christ. That's a saint. For us, you know, we, we get caught up with the capital S, saint, uh, authorized by the capital C, Catholic Church, like Mother Teresa, or just someone who is awesome, like, oh, thank you so much, you're a saint, right? That's kind of our definition of saint. <laughs> but for Paul, according to the Bible, a saint, the word just means someone who is set apart for God. Someone who is, is chosen and and put over here for God, set on a new trajectory for God. And that's everyone if you're in Christ. You are set apart for God. You're a saint, warts and all. That's you. So to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, and it says, with the overseers and deacons. Now this is interesting because it's the only place in any of these letters where in this part of the letter, in the greeting, the leaders of the church are specified, differentiated, even included. 
Most of the times it just says, to all the saints who are in Rome, to all the saints who are in Corinth, to all the saints who are in Ephesus. But it, it rarely uh, differentiates and specifies the leaders. So we don't really know why Paul does that here. You know, there's obviously conjecture and debate on why. You know, it could have been that the overseers and the deacons were the ones who were raising the, the funds and kind of, you know, doing the organization to give him those care packages, but we don't know. But even still, if you notice, Paul does not elevate the leaders in any way. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. He, do, he, he doesn't elevate them in any way. He does differentiate them. He does, he does mention them as something specific and different than just that congregation, but he doesn't elevate them. And so he says, to all the saints with the overseers and deacons. So we have to look at these words. What are these words? Overseers and deacons. So overseers and deacons are, are two offices in the church. And we learn that from multiple places, whether it's Acts or in the letters of Paul or other uh, apostles. And a biblical synonym for this word overseer is elder. And another probable, though not conclusive, synonym is pastor or shepherd. So our church at Calvary the Hill, we use all of these terms synonymously. You know, pastor, elder, overseer, same thing here. Not every church does that. We do here. Uh, the word deacon is a generic term meaning minister or servant. Uh, you see the word deacon just being used all over the place, willy-nilly. It just means to serve, to minister. But we also see it was also a term for another official office in the church. So as I mentioned, Stephen, who Paul helped to murder, he was one of the original deacons in the early church. Look how far Paul has come. <laughs> he, he murdered one of the first deacons, and here he is, I don't know, 15 years later, writing this letter of encouragement and including the deacons on it. So deacons were those called upon to care for the physical needs of the church body. Whereas overseers or pastors are tasked with caring for the spiritual needs of the body. But of course, as human beings, we know we have a myriad of both, and those lines blur. But these offices exist so that those needs don't fall through the cracks. Um, so that's what overseers and deacons is about. But the way Paul words this greeting, like I said, it doesn't elevate these leaders over the congregation. It, it sets off another theme. Another tone is set, and that is the theme that will recur throughout this letter, which is unity in Christ. You know, first the theme he set, up, set out is humility in Christ, and this is unity in Christ. This letter is for all the saints together, including the leaders, yes, but for everyone. Everyone is on an equal playing field here in this church. Listen to Paul's words later on in chapter 1 about this theme of unity. He says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then a few verses later he writes, 
So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I mean, you can't get more throw in an exhortation of unity than all of those phrases. One mind, full accord, same love, side by side, one spirit. That's what he wants. That's what he wants for them. And, you know, unity is one of those things that you don't really miss it until it's gone. You know, things were going swimmingly and you didn't really think about people being unified, but then all of a sudden people aren't unified and you're like, oh no. And for Paul, when that happens, it's a gospel issue. You know, listen to his words in chapter 4 when he gets a little bit more specific and uncomfortable. He says in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, I entreat, these are two names, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche, those are two people, to agree in the Lord. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my workers whose names are in the book of life. So when unity becomes disunity, it becomes a gospel issue, and Paul urges the restoration of this relationship because it's a relationship that has historically been a part of the furthering of the gospel. Disunity hinders the gospel going forward. And for Paul, that's like, oh no, can't happen. Don't let it happen. So these two themes, these these themes of humility in Christ, this theme of unity in Christ, they are in partnership for the rest of the letter. You know, you can't have unity without humility. In other words, pride, selfishness, and unforgiveness lead directly to a lack of unity. And so that is the author, that is the audience. Let's take a last look at the greeting there in verse 2. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a, this is a fairly typical greeting for Paul in you know, a few little changes here and there across his corpus, as they call it. Uh, it's pretty normal for him. This is kind of what he says uh, in different ways. But that doesn't mean it's ordinary. Paul basically takes the typical Greco-Roman letter greeting and he just Christianizes it big time. He he takes what what typically is just the word greeting. The root word has grace as part of it and he turns it into grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He just puts Jesus all up in that. (laughs) And so he says grace to you and peace. And the order matters there. You know, grace is shorthand for what God did in Christ for you. This is the undeserved or even ill-deserved favor that God has lavished on you, as we saw in Ephesians. Peace, peace is the life that results from that. This is the Hebrew idea of shalom, that things aren't just, yeah, things are not, You know, it's not just things are okay, you know. Things aren't horrible. I can't complain. It's not that. It's it's things are well. 
with you. You know, because of Jesus, in the big picture, if you zoom out, it is well with my soul. That's the peace that results from the grace that's been given. And peace becomes a theme as well. We find one of the most wonderful promises of peace in the entire Bible in chapter 4. When Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a beautiful promise. That peace comes through prayer, comes through throwing everything on God, including our thanksgiving. And all this grace and this peace is brought to us by God our Father, he says. You know, the fact that because of Jesus, God is now our Father, that is one of the most difficult truths of the gospel to grasp, to internalize. You know, we tend to think of God as a finger-wagging, disappointed, vengeful, in, maybe even indifferent person. But no, he is our father. He loves us more than your father ever did. He looks at you as he looks at his own son. That's the level of intimacy we now have with him. And yeah, he disciplines you. But he does so for your good. He does so for your flourishing. He does so for your peace. So it's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in just these two verses, like not that many words, Jesus is mentioned three times. Boom, boom, boom. Servants of Christ Jesus, saints in Christ Jesus, grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, notice... um, so not, not just mentioning Jesus three times here, but Paul uses the word gospel nine times in this letter. And so for Paul and clearly his close friends in ministry, the gospel of Jesus Christ takes priority over all things. You know, that's one of the reasons we, we're titling this, this uh, series in Philippians, Joyfully Pressing On in the Gospel. Because pretty much at every turn, Paul is thinking about, uh, meditating on, encouraging, exhorting to be focused completely and singularly on one thing. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. In, In Philippians, we find the gospel taking priority over citizenship, over political leanings, over socioeconomic class, over relational conflict, difficult circumstances, even the good things in your life. The gospel takes priority. Paul, he's such a great example of this. He views everything through this lens. Later in chapter 1, he says, you know, I might die soon. I'm probably about to die, but how will that impact the gospel? In chapter 3, he says, You know, I've done bad things and I've done good things, but how will that impact the gospel? In chapter 4, he says, I'm poor. How will that impact the gospel? And then he says, I'm not poor anymore. Awesome. How will that impact the gospel? In every situation, he looks at it through that lens. How will the gospel be impacted? How will my participation in the gospel be impacted by this life circumstance, by this situation? So that's why we're calling it 
pressing on in the gospel. Because as a church family, we above all things want to adopt a gospel priority. Because when you have Jesus, he becomes the most important thing about you. It doesn't mean all of our you know, little I identities are insignificant or don't matter anymore, but our identity in Christ matters more than any of them. That's why, like Paul, we, we move forward with one another in humility and in unity and with a gospel priority. So there's going to be other themes that begin to arise as we cover more ground next week, like joy. You know, it says joyfully, and joy is mentioned, I don't have it written down, but like so many times in this letter, whether it's joy or rejoice, Paul just can't stop thinking about joy and the rejoicing that we can do because of Christ. So there's going to be other themes, but for now, let's, let's press into what God's Word has shown us this morning and ask God to help us joyfully press on in the gospel.